had a very sad incident on the reopening where we had 20 hospitalizations and very sadly one fatality. Unfortunately, because we don't have drug checking operating as standard, we don't actually know the forensics as to what was causing all of those incidents. Any drug death is a failure of public policy and we can prevent people causing themselves harm and we can do that through drug checking. I'm Neil Maggs and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In this episode of Bristol Unpacked, we talk to Carly Heath, Bristol's first ever nighttime economy advisor. Sexual entertainment venues, the debate rages on. Drug testing in clubs, should we bring them to the city? And Bristol Rules, a campaign to improve behaviour, the pandemic recovery, key challenges across the months and years for the industry, and the agent of change principle. How do we regulate housing developments that complain about noise when they move next to music venues? You are the new night czar. The nighttime economy. Oh, you don't call it night czar then? No, it's the nighttime economy advisor. Although some of my friends call me Zali. Okay. Where did you start the role? I started back in March. It's a new role for Bristol. Didn't exist before. So, yeah, about six months in at this point. And that is to kind of oversee, when I say nighttime economy, that's anything from bars to restaurants to nightclubs, the whole gambit, yeah? Yeah, so nighttime economy is all businesses that operate between 6pm and 6am. In Bristol, it's actually over a third of our workforce work between those hours. So my job is to represent the people that work at night and the businesses that operate at that time and make sure that we have sensible policies that have thought about the needs of the night. Does that mean you have to go to bed really late all the time? (laughs) I'm a bit of a night owl anyway, Neil, so it kind of suits me. Oh, yeah. I've been working in the nighttime economy for 20 years, so... Yeah, tell me about that. You set up BrizzFest, didn't you? Yeah, I was part of the BrizzFest team in its first year. Ravon Avon was my little corner of that festival. We did the amphitheatre in the daytime, and then we had 10 clubs at night that all opened at the same time, and one wristband got you into all of them. And Ravon Avon is still going. It's on in a couple of weeks. New people have taken it over, but it still exists. Okay, let's talk about some big things that have hit the media and the press that are related to your role. Okay. One story which has been going on and on and dragging for for quite some time, it got quite contentious, particularly over kind of Twitter, is around the sexual entertainment venues. So we have had, literally last week, a ruling whereby two of the venues, Urban Tiger and Central Chambers, have had their licences renewed for another year debated isn't it all across the media and dare I say it's got a bit toxic in 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 some regard what's your position on that so the SEV sexual entertainment venues or SEV is an issue that has been going on the conversation's been going on since about 2016 so it's long before my time Mm -hmm. in my role there is a public consultation that will be starting soon and ultimately it will be up for the public to input into that conversation to tell the licensing committee what they feel about the presence of SEVs in 
Bristol City Centre and there'll be an opportunity for people to engage with the licensing committee at that point. I I sort of hesitate from, you know, as a man kind of talking about something that feels sort of slightly from the outside. This is quite a big sort of feminist debate, really, which is around um, female empowerment and bodies and who can dictate to who and stuff like that. And it's quite a it's quite a tricky situation to navigate, I would imagine, in your situation. I have people talk to me from all sides of the divide on on this conversation. I mean, all I can say is that the the council are giving people an opportunity to put their opinions in on the existence of these venues in Bristol City Centre. Yeah. Um, and when the public consultation comes out, which will run for 12 weeks, that will be a, a really good opportunity for people to submit their views, whatever they feel about these venues and the girls that work there. And then it will go to the licensing committee and the licensing committee will read everything from the public consultation, but also everything that's gone before. There's been a number of conversations that have got to this point. So the licensing committee will read everything that's happened since It seems to happen like every single year, though, or every couple of years, this comes back round again. Well, hopefully this public consultation will resolve some of those questions that keep bubbling along. I mean, it's, it's quite hard, though, if people have got quite strong entrenched positions, though, isn't it? There was a recent article by Matty Edwards in The Cable, which spoke to a, a couple of the workers from one of the sex entertainment venues there has been quite a strong I would say a strong presence across the media and obviously at the moment they feel I guess validated that the licenses have been renewed the Bristol Women's Commission have come out I think pretty much today or yesterday and criticized the council for failing to act to protect women and girls in the city I'm just going to read out what they've said. The decision comes as the government is told that fundamental cross-system changes urgently needed to tackle an epidemic of violence against women and girls. The 2020 Citizens Panel Survey, 28% believe that SEVs had a place in the city and comes ahead of a consultation on proposed ban on strip clubs. This is Penny Jane, who is the Bristol Women's Commission Chair, said the council had a real chance to take a stand against gender inequality this week to tackle the harmful gender norms which lead to violence against women and girls, and it chose instead to bow to pressure from an industry that promotes and profits from this. How do you respond to that? All of these arguments will come out again and again and again, I'm sure, in the next 12 weeks. But ultimately, it's a democratic process and it will be up to the people. Do do you have a a, a personal view? To be honest, I don't think my personal view on this um, is either, either interesting or relevant. You have previously showed support on social media for renewed licences, though. Yeah. So anything that I've said was before I started my job yeah. as as a council employee. But has your has your opinion changed or stayed the same? Well, my my opinion on the on the matter is irrelevant, Neil. Can the councillors be overridden by the mayor at the end of the no. process? No. No. It's a it's a judicial process by elected officials and it is a conglomerate of councillors that will discuss in very great detail everything that has come through the public consultation and it's ultimately it's up to the licensing committee to make that decision. Because Mayor Marvin Reese has been quite clear on his view on this issue, but that's irrelevant to the democratic process. 
the democratic process, you know, exists outside of any one political opinion. Sure. Okay, let's move on to another big issue, which I know you've been at the the forefront and you've um, tweeted about this yourself last week. I think you actually went and spoke in a parliamentary committee on, mm-hmm. on drug testing, drug testing yeah. in clubs. This is something that I remember, you know, in, in my old kind of early 90s rave days that people were talking about this. And there were various little kind of trials where it kind of happened, but it never really took off. This has now become a big issue again. You're somebody that's for drug testing. For people listening that are kind of have a, an anti-drugs attitude that see this as, you know, colluding with drug taking, what, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that drugs exist and people take them. Any drug death is a failure of public policy and we can prevent people causing themselves harm through taking drugs that they don't know what's in them. And we can do that through drug checking. I think that even if you were against the fact that drugs exist, I think it's worth recognising that they do. Any hospitalisation from a recreational drug or, or other is one too many. And certainly the very, very sad deaths that we see from recreational drugs shouldn't happen. So what would that look like then? So that basically somebody would turn up at a club, they would hand over, I don't know, some ecstasy or cocaine and it gets tested in front of them. What's the process? So I'm not suggesting that we have drug testing in every single venue. I actually don't think that it's the responsibility of venues or individual festivals to have to do that. I think that this should be a citywide issue. I think that we should have central location where people can volunteer samples of their substances and go and take them to somewhere like the loop and they test them through a robust series of checks see whether what the person thinks it is actually contains those chemicals if you follow the loops feed on twitter at the moment there is a lot of recreational drugs out there that don't contain what the consumer thought that they did and these cause all sorts of problems and that's the key point, isn't it? The people are taking stuff. They don't actually know what's in it. Yeah. And it's not just that, Neil. It's not that they don't know what's in it. It's also that without a open and honest conversation about drug use, people don't know how much they're supposed to consume either. So overconsumption is just as dangerous as unknown substances within yeah. those drugs. So they could determine not only what's in the drug but the the, the quantity the and the percentage dosage. dosage right okay yeah. yeah the correct dosage is just as important lots of the conversations that the loop have with people that are choosing to take recreational drugs is also around whether they are taking other prescribed drugs you know prescribed from their doctor such as antidepressants is a great example lots of people don't realize that recreational drugs will play funny games with your antidepressants and work in combat with them and actually can cause sorts of side effects that are are not very nice at all and this has been tried hasn't it so they've done this you know boomtown festival there was the first ever pilot was actually in bristol 2017 that was by the loop as well that's the first first time so so have we got evidence to demonstrate that this works and is effective are there other cities in the world where this happens and they have less deaths and less casualties from recreational drug use yeah i mean we if you follow the loop 
their statistics on intervention are amazing, really. I can't think of the stats off the top of my head, but they have a lot of people turn up to talk to them about their drug use. And it's the first time they've ever spoken to a healthcare worker about their recreational drug use. A number of them go on to actually access drug services such as BDP and the yeah. drop. That's Bristol Bristol Drugs. That's project. Bristol Drugs Project. Yeah, yeah, they have some really great non-judgmental advice around all sorts of different types of drug use, including alcohol. Because let's not forget that alcohol is an inebriant too. Yeah. Um, there's two different types of drug checking that we could do. There are on-site ones where um, a kind of customer focus, maybe. Yeah. So. People will go in and give them a sample of what they have purchased illegally. And that's the sort of thing that they have, like at Boomtown, for example. But there's also what's known as back of house checking. And we currently don't do enough of that either. And that's where police will escort the contraband to the services such as the Loop out of amnesty boxes and drugs that have been confiscated by security yeah so we can at least know what is in the community there was recently a drug in bristol wasn't there that was really dangerous that was like a batch of dodgy kind of we had a very sad incident on the reopening where we had 20 hospitalizations and very sadly one fatality unfortunately because we don't have drug checking operating as standard we don't actually know the forensics as to what was causing all of those incidents. Some of it is that people were over-consuming and didn't know how much to take, so taking way too much. Mm. Some of it from intel we have from conversations with the police is that the drugs had a very high amount of stimulant in them, so they're they're way higher than people expecting them to be, so people are overdosing. Yeah. And some of it is because they've got sinister ingredients in it. But without forensic evidence, it's really hard to say exactly what that is. So I'm an advocate for having testing within a city so that we know what is going on within the community. So you've there. taken quite a strong position on this. Obviously, this is a very liberal and progressive policy, arguably a more grown up and realistic position. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're in a a Labour city where I suspect some of the MPs would probably support this. But of course, the reality is we probably have a government that probably wouldn't. And we also have a Conservative Police and Crime Commissioner, Mark Shelford, who I interviewed on this programme last week, who would probably not necessarily be supportive of this. So how are you going to get around that? Well, I mean, like you said at the beginning of this topic, Neil, this conversation has been going on for a very long time. Recreational drugs are illegal. That's an issue for central government and home office. Um, Us as a city council, we can recognise that they exist. We can take a position of harm reduction. And what can we do to prevent people from hurting themselves? What can we do to prevent fatalities? And it's a failure of the state if people are dying from these things when it's completely preventable. So I can't, you know, I can't change what the Home Office position on the war on drugs is. But because if there is a war on drugs, we're not winning it, are we? Well, quite. Um, you know, pr- the prohibition on recreational drugs has been going on for a very long time now, and it's not a new debate. What I'm trying to do is work within the constructs that we have of the legal system that we have. 
Yeah. And if we can get drug checking and yeah. harm reduction policies embedded into the fabric of our city, we can hopefully come from a place of care sure. and trying to look after people who choose to partake in these things. This includes alcohol. This yeah. isn't just drugs. It's also about, you know, being mindful about your alcohol consumptions as well. Do you think it's become yeah. less boozy then on that in Bristol? Because I remember when, you know, you walked up Corn Street and you'd see a fight break out every five minutes. And I got to admit, if you go into Bristol City Centre now, it feels a lot more kind of European and cosmopolitan and there's people, you know, of different ages out, you know, having a meal, having a food. It feels a bit less... And less wild. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, you know, when we're talking about nighttime culture and the city being open for everybody to enjoy, that's the sort of thing that we want to promote, isn't it? We want people of all ages. Yeah. Of all... But you wouldn't get older people going in town years ago, you know, like you do now. You would just get, you know, lads and, and lasses in their sort of 20s and 30s out on the lash. I think part of that is the testament to how strong our food game is, you know, like we, you know, we've got so much in terms of independent food producers. And I think that just what people do has shifted slightly. I mean, whether that will shift again in years to come, who knows? We never used to, no one used to eat. We just used to have, you know, 12 points and have a kebab on the way back on the, on that little stretch by, uh, you know, by the Hippodrome, you know, that was was the only place to get food. Now, Bristol city centre is arguably one of the best, cities for for nightlife in the country now yeah well hopefully we punch above our weight for the size of our city yeah but like, I think when you go back when you go back to the sort of time that you're talking about we also had a different licensing you know we didn't have 24-hour licensing then we had pubs yeah. closed at 11 o'clock and everybody drank to drank to get to that 11 o'clock time <laughs> yeah. and then everybody kicked out into the city centre at the same time which is yeah. where a lot of the trouble started when right. 24-hour licensing came in um, it actually took quite a lot of the sting out of that tale because you had staggered closing times. Yeah, it's staggered. Um, and the irony is during lockdown, when we came out of lockdown and we had the, the time restrictions on the pubs, it, mm. that type of thing started to happen again a little bit, didn't it? Where everyone yeah. was leaving at the same time. And I think you're right, it doesn't quite work. Yeah, and I speak to people internationally. They have zoned areas. Rather than Bristol, you can open a, a nighttime spot in pretty much anywhere in the city, given a license. Yeah. In in other countries, in America especially, they have zoned areas. And, and in these areas, they try and very much control what happens in the nighttime. You know, they even to the point where they have stewards at, at the you know entrance and exit of it, controlling how many people are allowed to enter the area. And if you don't get there early enough, you can't get in. Really? And that's just into the street where all the bars are i mean mind you there are always the people that would have stopped drinking at 11 that now just continue drinking flat out until the early hours of the morning yeah but i think on the other side of that is people go out later as well yeah so i think any it's an ecosystem isn't it so whenever you make any sort of change mm-hmm. it changes the way in which that people behave the same could be said for the smoking ban sure when the smoking ban happened music changed because you know beforehand you'd be standing in front of the sound system and and i remember at the time it was very chin strokey dubstep yeah which yeah. i absolutely love by the yeah, way yeah um <laughs> and you could keep people in front of a sound system all night whereas when the smoking ban came in you would lose right whole side. groups yeah, of yeah. friends to, yeah. the, to the smoking garden yeah and the music had to by design had to have more interest 
to keep people on the dance floor. You know, it had to have more drops and more bangers and all of that kind of stuff. And it actually changed the music culture. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a good point. And and the way in which that people then do the night stuff. It took a while for that all to balance back out again. Just jump in and do the advertising. We are still looking for members for this campaign to try and get more people subscribed and members of the Bristol Cable. So do please jump onto the website and find out about it and you can chuck some money in every month and support everything we do from podcasts to documentaries to online articles and, of course, the monthly newspaper. Get involved. Back to the chat. On the city centre, I want to get on to behaviour. You've launched this Bristol Rules, which is about offering advice on a night out. So when I started my job back in March, a lot of people talked to me about safety in the night time. What are you going to do about safety? So I spoke to lots of different people from across the city, from the universities to people across different groups within the city council, to venues, to nighttime um audiences to try and find out what the most prevailing themes around safety were and try and tackle those issues first because there were so many you could can't do all of it in one go so five themes floated to the top what were they and they were around women's safety yeah. drug and alcohol harm reduction as a harbour town water safety leaving your friends behind than yeah. harassment in all of its forms. You've got these funky posters going around, haven't you? Yeah, uh, so I, it's a series of six posters around those five themes. Got one here, I call it this one. Don't be a creep. <laughs> Bristol rules number three. This applies to a lot of people I know. Put yourself in their <laughs> shoes. They don't want you to tell them they're fit. If someone tells you they're not interested, they're not playing hard to get. And remember, everybody's allowed to change their mind. It's great. Thanks. It, it was very much a team effort. Yeah. So once we decided what the themes were, we then conducted 100 interviews to try and make sure that we really got the language right yeah. um, and make sure that actually it doesn't sound like we're being dictatorial. So welcome back to the city. People have been away for a really long time. Sure. You know, lots of young people turned 18 during lockdown and weren't socialised to vertical drinking or to nightclubs. So it's kind of a reminder of some of the things that can happen at night. It's about welcoming people back and and, and enabling people to have a great night out. But also we really want to encourage respect for other people within the city but and also empower young people to call out bad behaviour. You've got one here, yeah. Number four, respect everyone. Our differences are what make Bristol such a brilliant place. So regardless of how someone dresses, how they speak, what they look like, who they date or how they dance, leave them to it. Exactly. So where are these going to be placed then? So they should be up around the city. You should start being able to see them. They are on billboards all over the city. They will be on the back of toilet doors in pubs, clubs, bars across the city. Mm. They will also be heavily featured across university campuses, the college, the student halls, all of those sorts of places. And a number of the colleges as well are using it as part of their induction for new students. So it really is a collaborative effort. Like this is the first time that I can remember in Bristol, everybody coming together to have care for the patrons. I've got to admit, I'm usually quite cynical about marketing campaigns and I've moaned about them on this show before. I think, oh God, here we go, kind of thing. But actually, um, without blowing smoke, I think that's a really good idea. Thanks. 
Um, well, we, um, I've, I've, you know, I've worked in nightlife in Bristol for a really long time. Yeah. I did 13 freshers fairs on the trot and I, you know, I used to run a company called Don't Panic, which was a flyer pack, which used to hand out okay. all of, yeah. lots of different club nights, promoters across Bristol. And I have stood outside at three o'clock in the morning for about 10 years of my life. There's pretty much no episode that can happen at that time in the morning that I haven't witnessed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I kind of, I know how how chaotic fresher season can be. Yeah. I know. You've got lived experience of this. I've got, I've got a lot of lived experience. And I also know that people are nervous returning to the night time. And so it's about kind of trying to pull all yeah. of those things together. and Well, you don't know what to do anymore, do you? I mean, I was bad. It was bad enough, me, just going down to the Sweet Mart on St. Mark's Road kind of thing, <laughs> sort of after a time. It was like I'd barely left within 300 yards of the house. And I'd... Oh, just just on that then on the sort of pandemic recovery stuff and sort of key challenges to venues yeah. a, a across the city uh i think there's been a council campaign called caramel what's called now get get out bristol or get in when it goes to different kind of venues and stuff there's been like videos it, i guess there's a real drive at the moment and a priority to pour those venues that must it must be really tricky at the moment for some of them even staying open yeah, not just the venues either. It's also the hospitality sector, you know. In general, first, yeah. The the forced closure for such a long period of time. And then when it reopened, having socially distanced, you know, having having less table covers, needing more staff to do table service, mm-hmm. all of those sorts of things. The costs increased. We've also got a massive staffing shortage, both because of COVID, but also because of Brexit. Yeah. Um, the costs of lots of things have increased. So it's a bit of a tough time out there to be an operative in Bristol, really. I imagine so- a lot of people have walked away, haven't they? Or they've a lot of people that maybe worked in the um, service industry have, have maybe gone and working as a delivery driver, or I don't know, or, or just doing a slightly different job because obviously you couldn't hang about for, mm. for that long waiting and waiting. Yeah, well, there was a gap in government support, especially if you were a freelancer or, yeah. or a, well, the same um, a zero hours yeah. worker. Yeah. Um, so we did lose a lot of talent, yeah, but but also it's kind of about recognising what the hospitality industry looks like, and we do have a high turnover of staff. We've got a lot of temporary staff. We've got a lot of gig gig workers, and those sorts of jobs come up through having been within the industry. You know, like if for festival workers especially, yeah. you're only ever as, as good as your last job. So yeah. if you haven't had a festival for two years to work on, it's really difficult to make those connections to be able to get back into working on one of those things. So we've got a bit of a we've got a gap in the talent pipeline. Mm-hmm. So you would encourage you would encourage and implore people to get out now as much as you can and support yeah. the industry and. Yeah, it sort of shake off the cobwebs a bit. I want to say something about working in hospitality. I think it's a really magical sector. I don't know any other sector where you can start work as a glass collector, for example, at the age of 16 and end up running the pub by the time you're in your mid-20s. You know, the career progression and the people that you meet and the skills that you learn along the way. Or hand out flyers at five o'clock in the morning and then become, oh, become the Bristol night czar. I know you don't like me exactly. saying that, but yeah, yeah, no, you're right, you're right. There is a pathway there, isn't there? That probably fast track, maybe more than lots of other industries. There's a million different pathways, and there's a lot of creative opportunities, and I would recommend it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's yeah. not just about city centre, yeah. all the kind of shiny, nice, swanky stuff. It's also about old fashioned pubs community pubs we have a bit of a problem in bristol that there are certain communities and areas particularly on the peripheral edges in the north and in the south of the city where 
pubs are closing. Mm. You know, and, and or there is no pub. You go, I think Noel, Noel West. There currently is no pub. I mm. think Barton Hill. You have a campaign to keep open the Rhubarb Tavern, which is the last surviving pub. You have in Hartcliffe houses being built over the Fulford Arms in, in Fulford, which would therefore remain the Hartcliffe Inn as the only pub in Hartcliffe. Lock Lees. You have no pub. Uh, these are kind of community council estates where the pub would have been a kind of central social hub. And and they're going. What's your stance on that? And, and and is that something that's on your radar to kind of think about trying to introduce local pubs again? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's such a big topic, really. I think it's an absolute travesty that we lose in these community spaces. What's so complex about it is it's decided on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Developers buy these properties. They deem them to be un profitable operating that they are they would rather turn them into flats they put in an application to the local city council and if nobody objects the the application goes through and and there goes the change of use Mm -hmm. and it doesn't come back into usage I, I think that everybody should have access to some sort of nighttime economy in their area you know and the local pub is a great example of a community space that can be accessed by so many different people yeah And I find it incredibly frustrating that we have to fight this on every single front. It feels like in Bristol at the moment, there isn't a single venue that isn't impacted by developments overlooming them in some way. Now, we do have agent of change principle, more for music venues and less kind of protected for pubs. Um, We are able to change pubs into a community asset. So the usage of the venue has to stay the same. Yeah. But, um... I mean, I remember, I remember a time when when I was in community development and I, I was with a kind of sport hat. Lots of new kind of like sport pavilions and stuff were built without bars or lots. Of, it was that kind of health agenda period of the sort of yeah. early to mid nineties, late late nineties, sorry, where it became people saw the pub as the area of antisocial behaviour and problematic drinking. But I think what kind of happened in in hindsight is actually what then happened is people started to drink at home or in a park and and actually what lots of key leaders in the city failed to to recognize is that the pub landlord acts as a kind of a a kind of control mechanism you know and and the pub itself is is where it's a rites of passage for many people particularly on those on the outside when you know it's more difficult or cost more money to get into the center and can they return from the centre at night as well? You know, when you've got places like Lock Lees, once the last bus goes from the city centre, exactly. how yeah. are you going to get home? I also think that pubs don't always need to be about drinking alcohol. I no, think a lot true. of it is about yeah. meeting your friends and being connected to your community. Well, that's what they were. You think about the, the old the family clubs, and you've got some in Bristol, like the, the Novas in, in Noel West or Seymour's in, in the Dings. Those, they're almost like a family community center with a bar kind of thing you know those yeah. and then obviously you had the sort of working men's clubs that it was social drinking but it was the all those activities and clubs and events and games and sports that came with that yeah and you, you know they're the sort of places that you hire for your birthday party yeah yeah 80th. they are exactly multi-generational spaces could we, could we introduce some of those again? Can, can, is that I, I've often said? Yeah, this. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that uh, like I'm doing to stop that. Like whenever yeah. I speak to developers or speak to planning agencies, I'm always trying to promote the needs of the night within these spaces and, yeah. and trying to open these places up. And I think that it's interesting as we lose these 
traditional pub spaces, they need to be replaced with something. But whereas um, the nightlife once was the saviour of post-industrial spaces, I think, I personally think, this isn't my official view, it's my personal opinion, is that um, we will move to a post-retail environment where we've got retail spaces that are shut remote high streets that need revitalization and i think that actually the job of the nighttime economy and these sorts of spaces can do well to reinvigorate the high street yeah. by putting more of those types of places yeah. on the high street and in- encouraging people back sure um you, you touched on housing developments mm. and obviously sort of business rates have, have gone up and that, when, when i've i've made a couple of little documentaries with pub landlords where places have shut and they talk about how high the rates are mm. another thing this comes up housing developments that get built around an existing venue that's still there yeah. this has happened in manchester and liverpool quite a lot where yeah. and there's been lots of complaints you know i'm going to generalize and stereotype now by maybe kind of yuppie people sort of moving into really extortionately expensive flats and houses around those areas and then they complain about the noise and they yeah. consistently complain and they know how to lobby and push sort of councils. And yeah. then those clubs end up getting shut. It's a point of serious frustration. Yeah, I imagine. If I move in next to a pub and then complain that there's people. Yeah. It's, it just it completely baffles me. How can we guard um, against that? Well, we do now have the agent of change principle, which is a, is a planning policy. It's not law, it's policy. Yeah. It's a national policy. And it was actually sparked by a Bristol campaign which was around the fleece. I don't know if you remember from a couple of years ago, they had a development right on top of their doorstep. So um, Thangham, Thangham Debonair and, and Kerry McCarthy championed it and got it through government. Yeah. And Bristol City Council tries to put the agent of change principle in wherever it can in these planning conversations. And what they do is they put in what's known as a deed of easement into the planning application so that New residents into the building can't complain about the noise from next door. And it's up to the developer to make sure that the building is properly soundproofed and that the developer has done their due diligence on the noises from that venue. So it's up to the new people that come into the area to respect what exists there already. In theory, that sounds like a really lovely thing. In Mm -hmm. practice, that doesn't always work. What happens is every single development needs to be fought on that basis. So, you know, you look at somewhere like Trinity at the moment, they have got planning applications in all around them on that little island that they're on. And on every single corner, they've got development around them. The same with Motion, the same with Thecla. And every single one of those is a legal process that they then need to go through to try and get deed of easement put into those buildings that are coming in next door. And it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It's it's really frustrating. I mean, I, I think that, culture should be seen in the same way that heritage is seen you know if you have a heritage building all building on it has to stop until english heritage are happy with the way in which that you're doing it and that it's sensitive to the building that existed there before now why doesn't that happen with culture it's not taken seriously enough because the money isn't with the culture the money is with the developers next door so it is an uphill battle and something that we are consistently fighting it must feel some of the club owners with greater confidence knowing they have somebody in a role like yours, not just championing, but also defending and fighting for, you know, in situations like that. Have you been received quite well? I know you've got a background and you probably know most of the clubs. and yeah, the owners. I mean, Have you received quite well the fact you're in this role? 
Yeah, I've had a lot of I've had a lot of positive feedback from um, people that work in the nighttime economy, particularly venue owners and festival owners, yeah. and things like that. But like like you say, I've known a lot of them for a very long time as well, so they know they've got one of one of their own helping to represent what it is that we stand for. What one point on cultural spaces? There's a kind of feeling in the city that some of the big shiny operations get a lot of support and a lot of funding. So, you know, Bristol Beacon, Walkshed, organisation, Arnold Feeney, organisation like, as, as great as they are and important as they are in the city, but some of those more community-based projects like Malcolm X, like Trinity uh, and others kind of feel that the love could be shared a bit more. Do you have a view on that? I have I have many views on that. Yeah. Um, I think that... I think that actually it's less to do with an issue with Bristol City Council and more to do with the way in which that these spaces are funded via Arts Council or or other funders. Culture has got a very developed way of being able to talk about their cultural value and talk about their cultural worth, Mm -hmm. especially those bigger organisations that have you know, a a whole team of people whose job it is, is to raise finances to make the whole machine work. The rhetoric with which they describe their cultural value is recognised as the way in which to speak about what they're worth by the funding bodies. They're good at at writing funding bids. They're good at writing bids. And that's essentially it. They've got the language right. So is there a role then for somebody to, to go out and support those other smaller or not even smaller, just community venues to be able to equally be as erudite in their application processes to to grant funders and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the pandemic actually has blown this conversation wide open because it's been a point of frustration for a very long time for anybody that works in these organisations. But like nightclubs, for example, never get any money from the Arts Council. You've got a nightclub like Lakota, yeah. who has been around for 30 years. The first time it's ever received any money from the Arts Council was part of the Cultural Recovery Fund, not in the first round, the second round. So the way, the rhetoric within which we prove our cultural worth is very, very new for some organisations. Yeah. And some organisations are just tiny. They don't have the staffing numbers. Yeah, that's true. It's having the, it's having the capacity yeah. you know, as much as the expertise. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. And I think that actually the pandemic has kind of levelled that playing field a little bit. Because people have been forced to do it, I guess, haven't they? They've had to in many ways. It's yeah. exposed how vulnerable the whole system is. So yeah. a lot of people that haven't previously written bids and previously applied for Arts Council funding. We have had people from other institutions in Bristol that are more practised with that, helping out other smaller promoters, smaller festivals, smaller other organisations in being able to write that bid. So there has been a bit of that in the last 18 months. I would love to see more of it. Maybe some of the cultural spaces, maybe they've been not necessarily set in opposition against each other, but but perhaps their main concern has been, I guess, making their own organisation financially sustainable rather than supporting others. Yeah. And let's not forget, this is a neoliberal policy that happened with New Labour. The Arts Council is something that actually, this is like, what, 20, 30 years old. It hasn't always been done like this. Yeah. And the, the more underground side of things, because actually... Some people don't want intervention from state funding to be able to do that stuff. They want to do it off of their own back. But what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to empower those young promoters, those emerging artists to be able to make enough money to make a living on it so we don't lose that talent from the city. 
yeah. and we get to help that talent grow. And Bristol is a great community for that. It really does support each other. And uh, just give a shout out to maybe uh, any big events coming up. Well, I mean, we're we're about to hit peak season. What yeah. what is traditionally peak season? You yeah. know, the end of September, October, November yeah. is traditionally where most of the really exciting nights all kick off after a quiet summer. I mean, this year's been a bit different. Yeah. Um, there's Sequences Festival down on the harbour side cool. in a couple of weeks. That will be a fun one. Um, but, you know, my musical tastes aren't everybody's musical tastes. So I would just say get out there, find out what's going on. And and there's something for everybody in this great city of ours. Yeah. So just get out there, spend yeah. your money, show some artists some love yeah. and have a great time while doing it. Your positivity is... Um... Is, is rubbed off on me. Usually my negativity sort of drags people down in, in these interviews, but you've, yeah, you're right. Cause I spent, I do spend a bit of time mainly about Bristol, but when it comes to stuff like this, that, you know, there's very few cities that come close, I think possibly to do with the location of the city. If you think about yeah. some of the real big music scenes and movements in the city and, and art movements as well, if you think about graffiti and stuff, they, they start organically here because yeah. we're a little bit isolated. I think we've always been independent from the rest of the country. I mean, even when you look back through our history, yeah. we're a dissident city, a support city. We were financially independent from London throughout our entire history. So we haven't been reliant on other cities for us to exist. Yeah. We're an old city and we, we create our own cultures. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just as true today as it was in the 1700s. That's a great way to leave it. Thank you, Carly. No worries. Thanks very much for having me on. It's been lovely to speak to you. Yeah, likewise. Take steady. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Carly Heath for talking to us in this episode. And we'll be back next week with a great topic and a fantastic guest. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs. And a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. And if you do want to become a member of The Cable and join 2,600 Bristolian members all across the city, chipping in every month, then please go to the website to find out more.